Travis Dodds. This is Greg Oddy. This is Tyson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. And welcome to episode 6 of A5Q I'm your host Dan And we've got another big show coming up tonight I'm really, really pumped about this one But before we get into that I just want to say again Very big thank you to everyone who's really made the effort To help spread the word of A5Q And, and telling your friends and family about it Hitting me up with a rating and a review um, On Apple Podcasts or, or wherever you listen to your podcasts And sharing my Facebook page, my Instagram page All that sort of stuff It really does mean a lot to me Because... Of course, to, to do these uh, these podcast episodes, it does take quite a bit of time and admittedly, it does cost a little bit of money as well in terms of podcasting, subscriptions and all that sort of stuff. But why do I do it? Because I really enjoy doing it, man. You know, this is, I really am passionate about talking to sports people, high profile sports people and, you know, listening to their stories, the good times, the bad, the ups and downs, the highs and lows. It, it, it's very inspirational, very motivating. And, and you know, if you listen to some of these episodes with some of these sports people and it really encourages you to achieve something in your life, well, then that's, this podcast has served its purpose. And even just for me to talk to these guys, like, you know, last week I had Tyson Edwards on the show and he was a guy that I used to idolize growing up, watching him play and I wanted to be like him. And even just to sit down and have a chat with him, even thinking that he knows who I am. That's that's incredible. And it, it's it's really, really good. And to have Al Green on who retired before I was even born and I've only watched him, you know, through documentaries or replays. To get to chat to him was was just fantastic. So I really enjoy doing this and, and it would mean the world to me if you guys could just continue giving me positive feedback, hitting me up with a rating and a review because it does boost the visibility of the page and it allows other people to know about A5Q. Even if you tell your friends at work or your family members, hey, this is dude, Amato, Daniel Amato, and he's got a podcast, Amato's Fifth Quarter, you should go listen to it. That helps. Everything helps. So I really do appreciate everyone that's done that, and I would definitely encourage everyone to continue doing that because it definitely helps me, and I really, really do appreciate it. 
But anyway, let's get into today's episode. Today, my special guest on the show is Brett Ma, one of the best basketballers Australia's produced, one of the greatest NBL players, and certainly would be very, very high up there as one of the greatest players to ever play for the 36ers, along with our Green and Daryl, the Iceman Pierce, Mark Davis, chairman of the boards, these sort of players. He is right up there in that top echelon. Awesome to have a chat with him. He talks about the back-to-back championships in 98-99. He talks about the 2002 championship as well with the 36ers. And he does go into some detail about his Olympic World Championship and Commonwealth game uh, tournaments with, with the Boomers. So he's an Australian representative. And he also does briefly touch on the very sad passing of his son who had a very rare disease. Um, and that is, you know, quite a sensitive topic. So if you are a little bit sensitive to to those sort of sad stories, then just be aware of that. Um, you know, it was a very tough time in his life, obviously. And he does go into a, to a little bit of detail in it as well. And going through his statistics now, he played 17 years in the NBL with the 36ers, one of the rare one club players, 1992 to 2009. He's a three-time NBL champion with the 36ers in 1998, 1999, and 2002. He's a two-time grand final MVP, so Larry Sengstock medalist in 1999 and 2002. He's a three-time all-NBL first-teamer in 2000, 2003, and 2006. And he's a four-time NBL all-star representative in in 1996, 1997, 2005, and 2006. And along with that, his number five jersey hangs from the rafters. It's been retired by the club, and it's there at all Adelaide 36 home games at the Adelaide Entertainment Centre. So let's get into this chat. Let's bring him on from the Adelaide 36ers and the Australian Boomers. Let's welcome Brett Ma. About to come onto the ground. Brett Maher decides to fire against Willie Farley, his old sparring partner, and Brett Maher does a good job. He now has five points. This is for three. Oh, three points. Copeland to Maher. Easy layup for two points there to Brett Maher. And Maher doesn't let him down. It's 12-9. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter, and today we're very lucky to be joined by the greatest 36er of all time. It's Brett Maher. Marzi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Kick off, I'm just going to ask you, what have you been up to now? I mean, you, you retired from professional basketball in 2009, and all of a sudden, that's what, 12 years ago. So what have you been up to since then, and, and do you miss playing professional basketball? Uh, definitely miss it. Uh, yeah, I wish you could play forever, but unfortunately, the body uh, doesn't allow that. Um, but yeah, been doing a few things. I uh, did a bit of personal training, property management, um a coffee franchise, uh, work, but went back and worked for the club for a little while, but for the last five years I've been in the uh, in the fire service and uh, really enjoy that. And on the side from that, I've been doing some basketball tours uh, for young school kids and uh, club players to kind of go over the States and have some pretty cool experiences over there. So that's been really good. And um, the last year or so, I've just got back again with the 36ers and been doing some of their in-school programs and camps and uh, also looking at doing a bit of stuff with Basketball South Australia in this kind of same field this year. And also a podcast with Andrew McLeod. Yes, (laughs) yeah, my other little bit of spare time. I've been uh, getting uh, a podcast up and running with 
with Bungie, and yeah, we have a lot of fun with that, and probably looking to get that uh, restarted again uh, pretty soon this year. Yeah, nice, nice. I do listen to the show every week, so it'll be good to get it back up once basketball starts, I hope. Yeah, well, that's the goal. Yeah, we thought we'll wait till the basketball season gets underway, and then there's a bit of footy stuff just starting to happen, and um, we should be all right. So, Marzi, was, was basketball always your first choice of sport? I mean, you started playing, what, for, was it Sturt Sabres in the, the ABA? And then you earned a contract with the 36ers. How did that come about? Um, not really. I started playing a bit of AFL footy when I was real young and some squash and tennis. And then um, a few of my mates were playing basketball. So I kind of just went along for the ride and uh, enjoyed it and, and kept going. So yeah, I started at South initially and then moved over to Sturt. And then uh, when I was 15, got invited to go to the Institute of Sport for... Uh, I ended up being there for three years, so that was kind of my leading to um, coming back and playing with the 36ers. So how do you actually get on an NBL list? Obviously, there's no draft like there is for the NBA, but how do you actually work your way to get a contract in an NBL team, especially back then in the early 90s? You know, I guess for me, it was a bit lucky being at the Institute of Sport. All the NBL coaches kind of know who... Uh, is there and within Australia obviously the best young talent was was there um, outside of that I guess just coming up and I know a few players that have just come up through the state league and played well made state teams made their premier league teams and um, played typically in, in the Siebel or the next level down from the NBL and done very well and then been given an opportunity to do it but I, I guess these days um, college is a really big avenue as well, so a lot of the young kids are heading over to college for the goal of playing in the NBA or going to Europe, but then also um, it's a good uh, step to come back here and play in the NBL. Do you remember your, your first season in the NBL under Don Shipway? Uh, I remember bits and pieces of it. I remember the, the short shorts and the hit the <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was the first year of the, well, it was the... Uh, what was it then, the distinctive homes dome, whatever it was, when we first, the Clipsal Powerhouse it was, so um, it was the first year of that, so it was a real big buzz just because we were going into a, a new big stadium, or bigger stadium anyway, um, so uh, yeah, it was exciting and um, it was always been a goal of mine to play for the 36ers, so it was kind of good to realise that. Back then, it was a world-class stadium. Yeah, that's it. It was a 8,000-seat venue specifically built for basketball with kind of three courts where the, the seats rolled down. And, uh, yeah, it was it was really exciting. I remember uh, the buzz around about... Um, and, and we were lucky, I guess, for my whole career. We were one of the only NBL teams that got to train where they played and play in a um, specifically built basketball venue, which... Um, like you look now, everyone's playing pretty much out of entertainment centres, so it's just kind of a drop-in floor and away you go. So to be specifically designed for basketball was a huge advantage. And you, you pretty much eased into NBL life pretty pretty easily because 1994, your third year in the competition, you pretty much already established yourself as one of the best guards in the competition. And the 36ers that year had a really good team with Scott Dennis and Smythe, Chris Blakemore, yourself. And you made the grand final series against the North Melbourne Giants. You went down in both games. What do you think it was in that particular year that you just couldn't get over North Melbourne, who were in and of themselves a very good team? 
the fairy tale is now complete. North Melbourne are the champions in season 94. To receive the Mitsubishi Challenge Trophy and the Dr. John Rasky Perpetual Trophy. Yeah, I think I was lucky in a, in a sense that I came in and got to play behind some really good players like Butch Hayes and, uh, as you mentioned, Phil Smythe came back and I, ha I had a coach that um, really believed in some of us young guys and, and gave me a start when probably a lot of other coaches um, would have had Phil starting, especially since he was still on the Australian team. And That was Mark um, Dunlop, wasn't it? Yeah, we had a super talented team like Rob Rose, Mark McKay, Phil Smythe, Scott Ninnis, all of those, Mark Davis in their prime. And, um, yeah, the thing, the thing that probably hurt us the most is uh, we played Melbourne Tigers uh, to get into the grand final and that's when uh, Mark dislocated his shoulder and so he was probably uh, playing at about 20% in the grand final and that was, that was the difference. We lost on the buzzer here and then uh, on the buzzer here and then they blew us out in the second game. But I think if Mark was fully fit, uh, there may have been a different result there. Do you reckon in hindsight... Mark Davis probably shouldn't have been playing. Yeah, uh, it's hard to say. Like he wasn't at full strength, but I think just him coming up and and trying to play gave the rest of us a big boost. And um, yeah, it would have been really nice to have had him at full strength. That's for sure. Well, what about four years later when Phil Smythe comes in and you guys beat Southeast Melbourne Magic two nil? in the grand final series. Were you surprised in that season that you actually beat them or you swept them in both games because they won seven games more than you in the regular season? Memorable victory here and the Adelaide 36ers are the 1998 Mitsubishi Challenge champions sweeping the Southeast Melbourne Magic in consecutive games. They win it by 28 points, 90-62. Yeah, definitely. They'd swept us through the regular season as well and we couldn't beat them at that stage so for us to uh, come up in the grand final and sweep them uh, I think winning that first game gave us so much confidence especially winning it over there uh, sorry we won it here but then to go over and win the second game over there um, was a bit of a surprise uh, they had a super talented team and um, and I'd only lost probably four or five games for the whole season so um, yeah, it was, a, it was a big thrill. I mean, you look back on who we had in that team now and you go, wow, what a team. But I guess at the time, uh, we were definitely underdogs against uh, a very, very good Melbourne Magic team. Tony Ronaldson, uh, Sam McKinnon, Jason Smith uh, and their imports. And yeah, they had a cracker team. So um, I think uh, Frank Drummick was in there as well. So yeah, they had a really good team. But um, yeah, we just played well at the right, right time of year. 1998, because Adelaide was known as Title Town that year. You had the Crows who had just gone back to back. You guys had won the Thunderbirds and then the Lightning. What was the buzz like in Adelaide around that time, and also the parade in the city and and all these sorts of things? You know, sport just booming in Adelaide. Yeah, well, that was probably one of the best parts of winning that championship was the parade we got to have down King William Street to see it packed. Like um, uh, it was virtually like it was. Uh, I don't, I don't know, like the Beatles that arrived for it. <laughs> the kind of feeling it was when we were paraded down in the cars and then we got up on the stage. I remember as I was the captain, I got the lift out trophy up and the four of us captains standing there with the trophies lifted up is still one of my favourite photos I've got at home. And, 
Um, it was an unbelievable feeling. We, we know they're all there for the Crows, but we kind of, uh, <laughs> we kind of just drew on it anyway. And it was a, it was a really good uh, feel around Adelaide, that's for sure. Yeah, nice. It'd be, it'd be good for, for the 36ers to win another championship. I think it's been a bit too long. Yeah, it has. I mean, our last one was, what, 0102, so it's nearly been 20 years. Definitely time. I mean, we've been in a few grand finals since, but uh, haven't been able to get over the line, so I'd love to see it sooner rather than later. And what about the year after? Because, I mean, for me personally, I think you were better in 98-99 as well. You played against the Victoria Titans again with Brian Gorgian. But this time, I've watched the 36ers documentary, and it almost seems like, from what you guys have said, that not that you were ahead of yourselves, but going into the second game of that series, you almost got a little bit too big for your boots to a certain extent. Is that is that yeah, fair? We, yeah, we were. We definitely, uh, I think after sweeping them the year before, um, and then we did a ride against them through the season, and then to win that first game away, um, to come home, we pretty much thought that we were just going to kind of walk through and and take another uh, win straight away in two but uh, they beat the absolute crap out of us in game two and um, I'll tell you what we sat in the change rooms looking at each other going we're gonna have to pull our finger out here to to win this thing now because they got their confidence back and um, yeah we obviously came back in game three and stepped it up a bit but uh, yeah it was it was one of those ones where we did probably uh, get too far ahead of ourselves was Phil Smythe upset after that second game? Like, did he? Did it, did anyone get a spray, or was was he still calm and said, "All right, we still got another chance." Yeah, no, it took a fair bit to rattle Phil. We didn't see him get too fired up on too many occasions. He was always calm and calculated, and um, he uh, was a great coach to play for because of that. Um, you didn't worry about him yelling at on the sideline. He was very calm, and uh, yeah, he, he just had that mindset of well, we've still got one more crack at it, fellas. Let's uh, regroup and and go again. It was only like two days later, so um, it was a quick turnaround. You know what time it is. Yes, that's right. It's quarter time here on A5Q. If you missed last episode, I had one of the legends of the Adelaide Football Club, 300 gamer, two-time premiership player, Tyson Edwards, who came on for a chat about his career with the Adelaide Crows. It was a very, very good chat, so I suggest you guys listen to it. Here's a little snippet of it to get you in the mood. I think if you had Malcolm Bryant sitting in his box, I think we would have won. The, one of the real strengths of Neil Craig was uh, he stuck to his game plan and he stuck at it until he got the best at it. But he didn't really ever change it. Um, and I, I, I said this is my own personal opinion. If we just tweak things a little bit offensively in either 2005 or six in those premiums, we would have won both of those games, no matter what you know, Benny Cousins did to us here at Footy Park or, or what happened. But we were just so rigid and, and you know, the opposition knew us really well. And that's fine. Like most, most teams know what opposition teams are doing, but you know, sometimes you just can't stop them because they're too good at it. And that was his philosophy. We're going, to, we're going to become elite at this style. Um, and no one's going to be able to stop us. Like, we're just going to, if we lose, okay, great. Well, that's good learning. We're going, to, we're going to get better then. We're going to get better. Go back into the archives and the full episode will be available. But until then, let's get back to Brett Maher. And what's it like to win a championship? Is it, when you win one, is it relief? Is it just... Curation. What's the the overriding emotion for you personally? 
And it's taken G being played by the Victoria Titans as the clock winds its way down on the 1999 Mitsubishi Challenge Series. And Martin Catalini, who has 19 points a game high, holds his finger in the air. Adelaide have won the 1999 Mitsubishi Challenge Grand Final in its first summer season and only the 14th in 21 years for back-to-back -back championship crowns. Congratulations to the 36ers. Uh, I think the first one in 98 was uh, a fair bit of relief in there as because well, we hadn't won one since 86, so that was 12 years, and, and I hadn't won one at all. So to kind of get that first one out of the way, it's like, oh, thank goodness. Whereas the second one, we kind of enjoyed it a bit more, and it was, um, yeah, just a, a enjoyment. I think you speak to most people in any sport at any level, one when you've won a championship, you kind of get a bit of the bug and yeah, you want to keep winning them. And um, I guess to win two like that, we thought that we were probably going to go on this massive three, four, five championship winning streak. But uh, they're, they're a little bit harder to come by than that. You can't just think it's going to happen every every year. But you guys had such a great team with yourself and Kevin Brooks, Darnell Me, Martin Catalini, these sort of guys. Do you, do you still keep in contact with that 98-99 group? Yeah, I am uh, pretty good mates uh, with all of those guys still, so we catch up. Uh, most of those guys are still in town, so yeah, I catch up with them on a on a regular basis. So I was out with KB a couple of days ago and see Scott Innes probably once or twice a week at least, and um, the other guys I see pretty regularly as well. So yeah, we created certainly a special bond uh, with that group, and um, yeah, it's a special uh, special group, that's for sure. Three years later, when you when you win another one, because I mean, for me personally, looking at the the thirty six in their history, it almost seems like two thousand and two is probably, for want of a better term, the less heralded championship. You know, a lot of people talk about eighty six with Al Green and Mark Davis, Ken Cole, and then a lot of people talk about back to back, but not a lot of people reflect on O two, and that for me is a bit sad because coming into that O two season, a lot of people doubted the thirty sixes could even make the finals let alone win the championship against a really good West Sydney Razorback side. And for you personally to win your second Larry Sengstock medal, is that does that come as a sense of pride to you that you won two Larry Sengstock medals, which makes you a renowned finals player? Um, yeah, I think that one, we, like, we joke about it um, a bit about we stole that championship uh, with the team that we had, but I, I guess if you look back a year or two before when we lost to Wollongong on the buzzer um, with those cruel Damon Lowry free throws, we kind of felt like we would have won that year. I have no doubt we would have won that year if, we, if we'd got past that game, which was like one second away from doing um, we would have gone up to Townsville and I think won that championship so um, yeah that that championship in 0102 one tipped us to finish kind of fifth or sixth and um, there was a lot of unknowns in that group um, we had a lot of role players in the group and um, we had a new import which no one really knew much about and we went over to China pre-season and um, played our first games against the national team over there and uh, Willie Farley joined us and uh, straight away we kind of, well, the two of us clicked really well but uh, he clicked into the team exceptionally well and um, yeah, we had a pretty good year and then brought Matt Garrison in about halfway through the year and he 
was a good link man between our young guys and our senior guys and was a real good fit and instant energy off the bench. So uh, we were very, very lucky the way the finals kind of panned out with teams above us losing. And so we ended up getting home court advantage in that grand final against West Sydney. And um, yeah, hard for win in the first one. We kind of went down on the buzzer in the second one and then the third game just everything went right so it was one of those games that was over at half time which no one would have predicted i don't think but we uh yeah just just clicked and all the role players stepped up and played their roles and um i guess willie and i were the main scorers that year so we did that and there's always an x factor in a uh, final and and rupert Sapwell was definitely our x factor in that one where he had 18 points off the bench in the first half so um yeah, there were some special moments, and that's probably one that I cherish the most because, um, yeah, we didn't have the superstars of some of those other teams, but uh, we certainly had a good um, mix of players that blended well together. And what does it mean to you to be one of only five players in NBL history to have won multiple grand final MVPs? And there is the Larry Senstock medal being presented to Brett Maher as the MVP in the grand final series. Kevin Brooks won it last year with an average of 23 points in three games, including 31 in game one of this series. is enough for Brett Maher to take not only the Senstock medal, but maybe higher accolades. Um, firstly... Uh, I'd like to thank Mitsubishi for their uh, sponsorship through the league this year. It's been tremendous. Uh, They've been with us for quite a few years now and they've really stayed with us through, not the droughts, but it's been a bit of a lull and it's really creeping up now with the championship come back to Adelaide twice. Um, I'd also like to thank Pure Milk for their sponsorship of the team. It's been great. Really, for this medal, I have to really thank the rest of the guys. Uh, tremendous uh, right throughout the year. Um, we struggled a little bit early, but we really came home strong, and the guys really fought hard tonight and rolled under the Titans to take a three games, a really hard fourth game tonight. I'd like to thank the coaching staff's also been good. And... Uh, Last but not least, I'd like to thank my wife and family who have uh, been very supportive to me over this last <laughs> few weeks. have been great. Thank you. The winner of the Larry Senstock medal for the most valuable player of the 2002 Championship Series is... Brett Maher. It means a lot. It's, uh, I speak to Bungie uh, about this a bit um, with our podcast and that because obviously he won two in, in the AFL Grand Finals. And um, for us, it was always a matter of wanting to elevate our game um, through finals and then in Grand Finals. Um, that's where uh, we believe the best players kind of step up and uh, and show it. And uh, so for me to be able to do that at least a couple of times um, I'm really proud of it um, you look at the list of people that have won it there's some pretty spectacular um, players on there and, um, yeah it's nice to be amongst some of those prep for this interview I did read your book marvelous the Brett Maher story you did actually spend a bit of time in Turkey didn't you how do you pronounce the name is it Bekistas Beşiktaş yeah so 
they uh, after the what was it the o four o five season yeah. I uh, said to my agent that I uh, wouldn't mind just having a crack at going over and seeing if I can get a gig playing in Europe and so we sent over some DVDs at the time to a heap of agents over there and gave us a buzz and um, yeah it was an amazing experience the Turkish people were really nice to me uh, they really looked after me and um, yeah it was a whole different uh, kind of atmosphere when you're playing it was uh it was crazy, but uh, yeah, we had a great time. We made the grand final series and um, just uh, bombed down the grand final series, but uh, that was the best they had uh, done to that point. So it was a good year. So what's the difference between you know basketball over there in Turkey compared to to the NBL? Uh, I think just the style of play in Europe. It's uh, a lot of slowed down half court offense. They run their offenses very well. Um, there's not a lot of just coming down the fast break, pulling up a three and shooting it. Um, <laughs> if you do that over there, there's a good chance you'll end up on the bench. Um, so a lot of the free flowing stuff that I was used to here kind of had to. We had to rein that back a bit. And uh, yeah, I think there, there are a lot bigger bodies generally over there. In the Turkish league, we're allowed four imports with only with three allowed on at one time, and um, so yeah, we had a couple of Americans, a, a Yugoslav, and myself as the imports, and um, yeah, it was just uh, I guess the atmosphere at the games was like they've dragged ten thousand screaming soccer fans and crammed them into a into a five thousand seat basketball venue, and they got. Flags going, flares going, really? stuff getting thrown on the court, riot police down every aisle with the big screens for protection of fans. And it was just a crazy atmosphere that I kind of got used to, and uh, really, it was it was really fun playing there. That's full on here in Australia. The craziest thing you can see is like kids with the clapper thing. Yeah, a few <laughs> horns maybe. But, um, yeah, it was ludicrous, and our fans uh, in particular were. Uh, nuts, but in a good way. Like they were really, really good fans. So uh, it was good, uh, yeah, good times. So what made you come back to the Thirty Sixes? Uh, well, I just had the one, um, the one year deal over there, and they uh, they want to go. They already had other imports in mind. I think nearly all of the imports changed the following year um, at our team, and we had. Uh, Khalid El Amin, who won Player of the League that year, a five foot eight point guard that was spectacular, and um, our our centre won Centre of the Year. But uh, yeah, they uh, they just had other plans to kind of move around. Was playing in the NBA something you ever wanted to do? Because obviously, it is you know always has been and always will be the greatest level of basketball in the world. Is it was that something you ever wanted to do? Um, it was. It's something I never really chased hard. I did have a few nibbles at various times um, from a couple of teams, but I never really went hard at, at chasing that up. And um, yeah, for whatever reason, it didn't eventuate. I, I know back when I was coming through, it was extremely hard to get into the NBA as a non-American. Um, those gates have certainly opened up, and uh, through the likes of people like. Luke Longley, Boga, Ingalls, Mills, all of those are really opening the doors now for Australians. But also, 
well, world-class top European players even struggled to get into the NBA back then. And um, because I wasn't playing major minutes in the national team, um, that was really the only way that you would kind of get picked up, if you, especially if you didn't go to college. Like, if I went through the college system, I may have been a much better chance, but um, I didn't do that. And uh, so it would have been a pretty hard slog, I think. Is that something that you look on with a bit of disappointment or are you just content with your NBL career? Uh, yeah, I'm content with it. I think um, I would have liked to have actually gone to college. I, I did look at that. Um, I was I got pursued by Arizona at one point quite heavily to go and then uh, I had a knee reconstruction and that kind of fell away. Uh, so I didn't know I'd gone to college. I would have liked to have kind of had that experience but the NBA I mean sure it would have been great and I, I would have certainly earned a lot more money if I went to the NBA but uh, I'm young yeah, quite happy with kind of what I just did back here anyway Referee says fellas take a break it's half time Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q I really do appreciate all the support I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid, subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now enough of that, let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. I don't know if you would agree with this, but it seems to me, and I've never played the game before, but it seems like back in your day of the the late 90s, early 2000s, it was almost for an Australian kind of considered more of an honour and more of a goal to play for Australia than play in the NBA, whereas now, not for everybody, but for a lot of up-and-coming Australian basketballers, if you ask them what would mean more to you to play for Australia or to play in the NBA. I think you'd find more than 50% would probably say to play in the NBA, whereas maybe back in your day, it was it was more of a prouder sort of achievement to play for Australia. Do, would you agree with that? Definitely. Um, I think you knocked it on the head there. I know when I was growing up, my number one goal was to represent um, Australia. And um, so to be able to do that um, was a huge thrill. And it was probably a bit more attainable. Um, to be able to do that as well. So, yeah, that was my big goal that I always had when playing. And I guess as the uh, doors to the NBA started opening up, um, I was probably, well, I was beyond kind of playing in that league by then. So, um, yeah, the timing wasn't ideal for me, but, yeah, certainly my goals coming through and, and most of those players was to represent the country. And uh, I think it's still the same now, but, um, yeah, there are, it is obviously a much more attainable goal to get in the NBA, so a lot of kids certainly uh, put that right up there on their goals as well. Yeah, well, you did achieve your goal and represent Australia. You went to, to three Olympic Games and also a world championship. Can you explain the buzz and what it's like to actually go to a World Cup or uh, an Olympic Games and, and just something that some of the listeners probably don't know about actually going to some of these tournaments and representing your country and some of the things also that happen off the court. Yeah, well, the, the Olympics is the big one, I guess. That's what we all want to go to. And 
Um, to go to three was a huge thrill. I, I didn't play uh, much at all at my first two, so I was able to experience the off the court stuff a little bit more. And uh, like the setup in the in the village is phenomenal. What they've got, there's a lot of, I guess, distractions in a way. They've got movie theaters and arcade halls and food anytime you want it. And there's there's a lot going on. Um, Whereas uh, we play when we're playing there every second day as well. So um, you're always playing on the off days, you're training, and we, we go right through the whole length of the Olympics. So uh, it's a pretty full-on schedule, but uh, I guess in my third Olympics I got to play a fair bit more. And um, from a playing perspective, uh, really enjoyed that. And for me, it was kind of uh, about proving to myself that I could compete at that level because I hadn't really been given a chance at the Olympics in the first two. So um, I thought I'd played reasonably well at that third one and um, it was kind of a good for my mindset, I guess, in a way to be able to say to myself that I could do it. What do you think was the biggest opportunity like that you played in? What would, do you think was the biggest opportunity for Australia to actually win a medal? Because you finished fourth in both 96 and then 2000, I think you played Ukraine and Lithuania. What do you think was the the biggest opportunity in those two campaigns for Australia to finally win a medal? Because still to this day, they haven't won one. They've finished fourth, seems a million times, but just haven't quite got a medal yet. Yeah, well, in 96, we crossed over against America and had no chance. Um, so then we played off against Lithuania and, and they, uh, they had an unbelievable team. We'd actually beaten them in the lead up though to the Olympics. So we thought, uh, actually that was the second one, we thought we were a chance when we played them, um, but they had improved so much and they pumped us from the start of the match to the end of it and we lost by, I think, uh, about 25 in one and I think 10 to 15 in the other, but we were really um, not in the game as a chance of winning either of those. We were outclassed in a bronze medal game, unfortunately. I think if you if you put yourself in that situation, then um, enough times you're going to get it get it eventually. And I was really disappointed to see the Aussies get to that same spot and lose because I think that well they did that a much better chance of winning it. Um, to lose on the buzzer uh, is heartbreaking, and uh, I think they were pretty hard done by in that game as well. But um, they're still right around the mark. A lot of our superstars are still kind of in the prime of their career. So I think we'll be uh, a good chance for a while. So I'm hoping that they can get over the line and we'll have to wait and see. When it comes to international campaigns, why do you think the Olympic Games is seemingly a bigger a bigger deal in the basketball landscape per se than what a world championship is? Uh, I guess it depends who you speak to. I think... Uh, a lot of people say the world championships are better because it's purely basketball. None of the other sports are there. and There's more teams at the world championships as well. So, um, And they're all top quality teams. So to do well at the world championships, some people rank higher. Um, I, I personally just like the Olympics a lot better and um, would prefer to do better at the Olympics myself. But, uh, yeah, that... That view is probably split a fair bit down the line, I think, with a lot of people. Objective to opinion, I suppose. Yeah. So you played over 100 games for the Boomers, and you actually had the honour of captaining your country at the 2001 Goodwill Games. I'm sure that stands up there as something that very humbling. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, to play for your country is a huge shoulder sure, captain. Uh, it's once again, uh, it's amazing. We had uh, virtually everyone from the 2000 uh, Olympic team uh, retired or stopped playing in the national team after that, and I was one of the few left. So uh, I was certainly the senior member of the team, and um, yeah, it was a big thrill to do that. There was. Uh, there was a few tournaments that we went to that I that I did captain the team and um, yeah it's a it's a big thrill and unfortunately while I was captain we did lose to New Zealand in the qualifiers to go to the World Cup um, which was the first time in history <laughs> which is not a not a good thing to have on your resume <laughs> but uh, I guess in uh, in hindsight they went on and finished. Uh, I think fourth, which was better than Australia's ever done anyway. So they uh, they did amazingly well and probably vindicated us losing to them how well they did. So what is the moment that you're more proud of? Is it to represent Australia or to win an NBL championship? Can you split the two? Oh, look, it's pretty hard to split the two. I, th- I think my biggest goal growing up was to represent Australia. So um, that is a big one, but... Um, also, you spend so much of your time and your career playing for uh, your NBL team. So um, the amount of time that you uh, put towards that, you certainly want to come out with something. And so to, to win the championship means uh, so much as well. So, yeah, it's hard to split that. Okay, cool. Are you at all disappointed that, because obviously when you started playing in 92, that was when basketball was really booming here in Australia. But then in the later few years of your career, sort of after the championship of 2002, the league you know, wasn't in the greatest position. And probably when you retired in 2009, it was potentially in its lowest position that it's ever been in before it started to come up. Are you disappointed that you ended your career when it wasn't in its best state? Oh, not really. There's not much you can do about that. I was just disappointed, um, yeah, that the... The way things had gone with TV rights deals and uh, and everything else, the way the league was being run at the time wasn't well done. We, we couldn't attract the fans and, and get heaps of people to the games and sponsors were hard to get. Uh, I think AFL had really lifted their game through that period and uh, knocked a lot of sports uh, for six, really. In, in the way they were going. But, yeah, it certainly was in a really down point in 2008, 2009 when I retired. And um, I'm really happy to see the way it's uh, kind of picked itself back up it, since Larry Kesselman's taken over. And I think he's done a superb job. Because, I mean, probably 10 years ago, you'd be lucky to get a crowd of like three, 4,000 to the game. Whereas now, I mean, last year with LaMelo Ball, Illawarra Hawks was the biggest crowd ever against Sydney Kings. So... It is great to see the NBL is now a world-class league. It was a world-class league in the 90s, and then just something... I don't know what happened. I mean, I was listening to an interview with, with Leonard Copeland, and he was saying that teams stopped going to schools, they stopped promoting, they stopped going out to the community and things like that. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I do. I think they sat on their hands a little bit and took a lot of things for granted because the sport was going so well. And um, if you do that, then it could, certainly uh, can bite you, and it did. Um, but yeah, I mean to see those massive crowds back, to see sponsors back, and um, reasonable TV, and even uh, the way when you speak to people in the NBA and uh, around the world about our league, they all know it, recognise it, and 
Um, like the NBA are taking measures to try and, uh, I guess, stop a few players from coming out here because they realise heaps of them now want to come out. They've seen what other players have done out here and got back into the NBA or got into the NBA through this as a stepping stone. And um, they're, they're trying to promote their own D-League and that as a similar thing. But, uh, you yeah, know, there's a lot of respect around for our league now and, and that's a good thing. Yeah, it's awesome. What about in the last two years of your career? Because this is one sort of period with, with the 36ers that I feel isn't really spoken about a whole lot when Leonard Copeland came to Adelaide. What was it like to play with Copes? Obviously, great player for Melbourne Tigers. You know, him and Andrew Gay is probably the best duo ever in NBL history. What kind of an influence did he have on the group and, and what was it like to play with Leonard Copeland? The New Look 36ers for the very, very first time. It's their first home game and the first chance new recruit Leonard Copeland will have to feel the Adelaide crowd supporting him. And Leonard joins us right now. Hello, big guy. How are you? Good to see have you. Have a look at coming a bit. Have a look at the size of you. <laughs> hey? And you haven't got an ounce of fat on you? None at all. Yeah. None at all. You feeling fit? Feeling good, ready to go. <laughs> how's the coach, you know, and how's all the boys? I mean, how have they been? Have they made you feel welcome oh, in Adelaide? I feel great. Um, you know, it's been a, it's been a tr- bit of a transition, not yeah. playing much in, in Brisbane, but expected to play a lot here in Adelaide. Oh, it's awesome to play with him. He's uh, quality. Like we had a few blokes through the probably last three or four years of my career that came in, and unfortunately, were either right at the tail end of their uh, of their career, or they had some pretty serious injuries. Um, like Chappelle had a bad back injury. Marcus Timmons was towards the end of his career, and then um, of course Leonard Copeland as well. And um, but as far as a person and a personality, um, he's an he's an awesome bloke. He's great to have around the team. I would have loved to have played with him when he was in his prime. And in saying that, I mean, he was 40-odd when he was here. Um, he still moved pretty well for a 40-year-old. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, uh, still had some cracker games. And, yeah, a quality, quality human being. Yo, yo, it's three-quarter time here on A5Q. And, you know, this is just... This episode's just got a bit of a basketball feel, so let's just keep it b-ball, honestly. Let's keep it NBL. In the next couple of weeks, I've got another special guest coming on the show. It's Andrew Vlahov, who is a Perth Wildcat, an Australian basketball legend, just like Brett Maher. He came on the show to talk about his career with the Perth Wildcats and the Australian Boomers. It was awesome to have him on. Here's a little snippet. Whilst we won the pre-season, our start to the season was terrible. Um... And I think we were at best 500. And this happened in the Canberra Cannons home gym, that coldest place on the earth to play basketball. But we just lost to the Cannons. And um, and we had, you know, this is the 95 team. And we called a team meeting and I asked Adrian to leave the room. And to a man, we went around the table. We stood there. We were freezing. Um, we were icing and down after the game, but we were freezing. But we went around the room and we said, it stops here. Um, the accountability goes up uh, a million percent. And from that locker room, we felt like we had expunged whatever demons were haunting us. Um, and we got back to playing some of the best basketball I think we've played. I think we went on an 11-game winning streak. And we got a swagger happening that uh, and, a, and a cohesiveness that was really, really special. You know, everyone then understood and accepted their roles. And I think that wasn't the case uh, in the in the teething process, you know, leading up to that game in Canberra. 
If you thought that sounded good, wait till the full episode drops in a couple of weeks' time. It was great to chat with AV. He's a good bloke and was a very, very good player as well. One of the best we've ever seen here in the NBL. But until then, let's get back to Marzi. And what about when it comes the time for you to retire? When you know I'm done, that's it. Is it emotional? Is it relief? How did you figure that out when when you knew it was time to, to hang it up? Yeah, well, it was pretty much decided for me. My last two years, I really struggled with my calves and Achilles. Um, I had to strap them, ice them, have uh, before every session, had to do a, like a half hour routine to get them ready. And then uh, after sessions, uh, a similar thing. And it became very laborious. And um, I was straining them and tearing them quite regularly and it was uh to the point where i was becoming i never wanted to be a um a drag on the team and it was a point where i couldn't train all the time and had to be managed and it just got a bit too much so i reached the decision that yeah look um after that final year um it was time to to give it up I, i was at a point through having to take my calves and achilles that I'd lost uh, lost a bit of speed, couldn't get past guys. I, I felt like I could normally easily get past, and um, when that starts happening, uh, I think it's time to go. You can't play forever, can you? No, it'd be nice. It'd be nice. You see guys play into their 40s uh, and that, and, uh, yeah, for me, yeah, my body just said, look, that's enough. So it was kind of good in a way. I was able to decide when I was like my last season, and, um, not many professional sporting athletes get to choose when they want to stop, and I was probably one of the lucky few that was able to do that. And what did it mean to you to have the the Adelaide Arena named in your honour? A sellout crowd of 8,000, as well as past greats of the club, were on hand to pay their respect to Brett Maher on his last regular season game at the Dome, congratulating a man who for over 520 games wore the Sixers uniform. From now on, the 36ers will play on the Breckmar Court, honouring the man whose 18 seasons as a 36er were played with distinction. His teammates didn't let him down on the night, as Adelaide took control early in the game, shooting the lights out in the opening quarter and putting the defensive clamps on the breakers in the second. Whenever New Zealand made comebacks, the 36ers stayed on track and in control, with Rod Grizzard lighting up the first half, Adam Ballinger and Luke Sencher in everything, and Jacob Holmes and Aaron Bruce also playing well. But this was Brett Maher's night, in a performance that will long be remembered. He wasn't setting up teammates with sweet dishes, he was hitting everything from mid-range to near half-court. Long three-point shot. Oh! With the fist bump, Brett Maher! The crowd is going for Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, that's a huge honour to walk in there and see your name on the court and um, people call it the Brett Mark Court and all that. It is, it's a huge honour. At the time, uh, Paul Bauer was the general manager and he called me to the office to tell me and um, it was a pretty um, emotional moment and uh, I think at that time only uh, the Boston Celtics were pretty much the only court we knew of other than that, that had done it and in having read our back on their court, but um, now it's being done quite regularly uh, around different places. But uh, yeah, at the time it was a, a really new thing to do and um, yeah, it's a huge honour. So when you found out, what was it like when he told you, we're going to name it after you? Is it emotional? Like, do you think, oh, is this a joke? Do you, is it embarrassing even? Like, how does <laughs> how's that initial, what's that initial emotion? When you get told something uh, like that, I was a bit awestruck, really. I, I didn't 
know what it, I didn't even think about what it meant moving forward or what it would mean on going or uh, even at the time it was just cheap as they're going to do this is is quite huge Uh, I kind of had had the joke with him was that the only way you could get rid of me to do that (laughs) (laughs) and uh, we have a bit of a laugh about it now but uh, yeah it was just um, yeah, a little bit dumbfounded that they would do it and uh, a huge honour. And just as we're about to, to wrap it up now, as I said, I, I did read your book and, and there was one chapter in the book that, that really hit home to, it, to a, I think, a lot of people, not just myself, and that the, the, the chapter about your son. Now, you know, if, if you're happy to talk about it, you know, your late son who passed away with a rare form of, of bone cancer. You don't have to go into great detail, of course, but when something like that happens, does that change the way you view the game of basketball and just professional sport as a whole? I think it it certainly changes the way you view life in general. I mean, everyone seems to get pretty um, uptight and that about some pretty small things, but when you're going through something like that, it really puts things in perspective for you. And um, we had some, I guess... uh, interesting moments through that whole um, scenario when I had to go over to Sydney for three months and um, I was still going to be playing that season. Basketball really became my rock that I could kind of get away and forget about what was going on in the rest of my life. So it was, basketball had been really good to me in that sense and um, yeah, it, uh, certainly you wouldn't wish it on anyone to go through that but uh, yeah, also some people that kind of phoned me and offered me stuff over in Sydney was um, unexpected to say the least. Brian Gordon, for example, allowed me to train with the Sydney Kings when I was going to be playing with the 36ers that year. And Yeah, it's pretty amazing how the Basel community um, kind of helps each other out and um, yeah, they were, they were really nice. Yeah, that, that's an amazing, amazing gesture from, from Brian Gordon there to do that. Yeah, definitely, and yeah, even like um, Shane Heal, who I had a massive rivalry with, and we got her on a right off the court, but on the court, we're always going for that same spot in the Australian team, and yeah, he rang up and said that he had a place that wasn't being rented out for a few weeks if we wanted to stay there, we're more than welcome, and just really uh, unexpected, but uh, really nice that uh, people would do that sort of stuff, and yeah, as I said, the basketball community is a very special one, and tends to uh, look after its own. Yeah, absolutely. And Marzi, just as just as we, we are about to, to close up now, I've just got one last question. In fact, I've got three questions for you, and I'll ask them all in one sentence. In your career, whether it be with the national team or with the 36ers or even in Turkey, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? And who's the best coach you ever played under and why? They're tough. <laughs> I'll break it down a little bit. Uh, one of the best players I played with, well, in Turkey, Khalid El Amin, with the point guard who won the MVP of the league, was an unbelievable player. Uh, and to dominate a game when you are only 5'8", five, 5'9", five, it's pretty spectacular. Um, Andrew Gaze with the Australian team stands out. Um, uh, amazing to lead all scorers at Olympic Games, etc. Um, Darnell Mee for the 36ers was probably uh, my favourite player to play with. Um, anything that you needed done to win the game, uh, he would do. And 
was uh, very good at everything. Um, there's a few others that stand out with the sixes. Robert Rose was spectacular. Um, and Willie Farley, Kevin Brooks, all of those were good. Uh, as far as a coach, I really enjoyed probably my favourite two coaches. Uh, Phil Smythe, obviously. Um, we had so much success together. I loved his coaching style. Uh, and Brian Gorgian was awesome to play for. I so much respect for him and uh, the way he coaches. Uh, so those two stand out there. Uh, the hardest player for me to guard um, in the NBL was Andrew Gaze, mainly because every play was run for him and every play he wanted to score. <laughs> so you couldn't switch off. So he was the hardest one to guard in the NBL for sure. Um, Steve Woodbury was right up there as well. Um, and Leroy Loggins, probably my top. Oh, and Ricky Graves has to get a mention. Uh, those four would be the top four. Um, and then, yeah, the internationally, the dream team um, the, in 96 Olympics was certainly the best team that we played against. Awesome. Marzi, thank you very much. It's been an awesome chat. I've really appreciated your time, and I wish you all the best in everything you're doing now out of basketball. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, no problems. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.